it's another Friday and it's 12, um, 2 p.m. Central Time. And welcome again to Enflex even today. Uh, we thank God. My name is Ebenezer Edijan I'm a student at Truett uh, Seminary, um, attempting to master divinity, which is a very difficult thing. So, <laughs> but um, it's great uh, to have everyone uh, join us. And um, today we are going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. Uh, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount for the past few weeks. Uh, actually, we started our discussion with John chapter 1, where we learned that the Word of God is a person, and this person is full of grace and truth, and that is Jesus Christ. And last week, um, God helped us uh, to understand that this Word of God with Jesus Christ is actually the righteousness um, of all believers as well. So we are our righteousness is Christ. And so when we connect with Christ or we allow Christ to come into our lives and we model the life of righteousness, we may face persecutions, but it's not really on us, it's on Christ. And I'm so grateful that we were able to learn that last week. Today, as I said, we are going to um, read or discuss Matthew chapter 5, verse um, 13 to 16. And to help me do that uh, today, are um, Eric Amuzu. I think those of you who have been following uh, Fleshed, you are familiar with Eric Amuzu. Eric is a PhD student, uh, PhD candidate in church music at Baylor uh, University here. And um, Jackson Adama, Jackson is a PhD uh, uh, candidate in theology and ethics at Duke University uh, in North Carolina. And then I also have Mariah Humphrey. Uh, Mariah Humphrey's um, is with us today. She is a graduate from Truett Seminary. She also works um, with um, Baylor Campaign and Development Communications, right? So, um, Maria, thanks, thanks a lot for joining us uh, today. And we have a special guest today with us, and uh, the person of Dr. Jenny Howell. So, Dr. Howell has taught uh, theology courses at Truett Seminary here in Waco and Baylor University. And she also taught um, in an honest, uh, Baylor's honest program. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Howell. Good to be right. here. Thanks, Ebenezer. Okay, so uh, before we start, I'll just pray with us. And after that, um, Jackson, if you will read Matthew chapter 5. Um, uh, Cecily is having some challenges. We're hoping that she can join us. But whenever, whenever she's able to join us, I'll just let her come on board. But today, Cecily is supposed to join us um, but I'm sure she will join us later. So let us pray. And after that, Jackson, you take our reading for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this afternoon. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Our prayer is that you help us um, understand this word, open our eyes to see great things in your word, and then help us even apply that even to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. All right. So Jack, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. to Okay. Okay, so Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 uh, through to 16. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Um, and the caption goes like, Believers are salt and light. Uh, so verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its, its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do, they light, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. 
and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Jack. Well, um, I'll start our discussion with uh, you, Dr. Howell. And um, I just want to look at the first one where Jesus refers to the disciples and the people as uh, salt of, of the, I mean, salt of the earth. And um, I'd like to find out what do you think Jesus had in mind when he referred to his, his disciples as salt of the earth? Well, it's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? Yeah. Um, to be salt uh, is not typically something that we say um, in terms of endearment to others or anything like that. I think it's important to begin by looking at this particular passage in context. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you, um, through the last few weeks, you've been spending a good bit of time in the previous section, the Beatitudes. Um, and so we don't need to unpack all that to understand fully what's going on here. But I do want to note, first of all, that there seems to be a transition with this verse. Um, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle, and so on and so forth. And here we have this idea, right, that these blessings are gifts from Jesus, um, that are gifts to those who are in different forms of suffering that uh, we know will be part of what it is to follow him. But in this particular passage, as Jesus is up on the mountain with his disciples, it's like he's, he stops and he turns and he looks at them and he says, you are the salt of the earth. So I want to just stop for a moment and take that in. That whatever this means, Jesus is turning to the disciples and telling them who they are. Mm. Now, salt. Uh, When we think about salt uh, in cooking, which I love to cook, um, salt is a fundamental component of pretty much every uh, dish that you prepare. And I think that's a a universal claim that we can make, right? Whatever the cuisine is, whatever part of the world you're in, we all use salt when we cook. And the reason why is because what salt does, um, well, it, it, it serves two primary functions. First, it brings out the flavor of the thing that's being eaten, right? So salt doesn't compete, or it shouldn't at least, if you salt properly. It doesn't compete with flavor of whatever you're cooking, but it brings out the flavor. Mm. If, you're, if you're flavoring a, a, a juicy steak, it's going to make the steak taste more like steak. Mm. Um, and uh, it, it, makes, it makes the elements of your meal come alive. And then uh, probably more of what Jesus is thinking about here, I would guess, based on context, is the second aspect of what it means uh, to use salt. And that is for preservation, right? Um, Especially in the time of Christ, if you wanted to preserve your dish, if you wanted to preserve meat or even grains, you used salt. 
it was the primary form of preservation. And so here, I think what Jesus is saying is he's turning to the disciples and saying, you are going to be the preservers of what it is that you, of, of who I am. Yeah. And, um, and so what that means, I think you need to jump to verse 17, which I know you'll be talking about later, but I do want to connect it here. Because what Jesus says right after this passage is that he doesn't want to abolish the law. And I think that's really, really important. He doesn't want to abolish the law or the prophets. He says this in verse 17. Rather, he says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so when he turns to the disciples and tells them who they are as salt, I think this is an extension of this reality. Jesus is not coming to do away with the Old Testament or the old laws, but rather through Jesus, we see the fulfillment of the law. And as his disciples, the disciples are called to preserve that reality and that truth in the world, which is why we're the salt of the earth. It's also interesting, and, and I'll open this up in just a moment to everyone else, but I think it's worth noting that um, in the Old Testament, we have references to salt as a kind of covenant. Um, in, uh, let's see, I've got the scriptures here, Second Chronicles and in the book of Numbers, um, Numbers 18 and Second Chronicles 13, we have a reference to a covenant of salt. Hmm. And this is the language that God uses as his promise to be faithful, both to the priesthood, the royal priesthood of the line of Aaron, and to the Davidic kings. And it's God's way of saying, I will stay with you. I will abide with you. Going back to the, the, um, the covenant with Aaron in particular, the royal priesthood would literally make meals using salt to dine with God. This was one of their fundamental practices. So here we can imagine this intimate table fellowship with God. And the sign of it is the covenant of salt that for all time, God will preserve his people, not only to abide with him, but to enjoy fellowship and communion around the table. Hmm. I think that as the disciples were listening to Jesus, they would have had all of that in their minds when Jesus tells them not only that God has a covenant of salt with them, but that they are actually the salt itself. Hmm. Wow. Thank you very much um, for that. It's a nice, great one there. Thank you very much, Dr. Howell. Um, Eric, uh, let me come to you. Um, any additional comments on that? And also, uh, it, uh, Jesus talks about if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Mm. I'm wondering, I mean, how can I know. You, of course, on your That's, yeah, you know, so, so many deep things the Bible is actually, you know, telling us here. Um, just to add a little to what Dr. Howell said, um, one thing to which was significant within those times which salt was used for, was used as a currency, a form of currency, you know, which came, you know, from, we had our word salary from, it's also important that, you know, Jesus Christ was making them realize that 
you are going to play a very significant role in the future after I have left, which has to be very significant to the movement of the gospel I came to present to you. In other words, you need to know that. You need to recognize that. You need to realize that. It's something you need to be able to uh, remember that even after I am gone, you are going to be savers in this kind of environment which needs that saver as a salt. You'll be a currency. You'll be used in different forms mm. to be a bearer of my identity and my image in the earth realm. And that's so, so important because, you know, it makes them realize that they have a responsibility. So you are not only listening to me as, you know, a savior to you, but you are listening to me to learn to become disciples and bearers of this image, which I am giving to you. So I, I feel that, you know, it is just so significant for them to do. I feel Jesus Christ was trying as much as possible to make them understand that there is more work in the future you're going to do. So you need to do yeah. that. Now, you know, when I was looking, at how can salt lose its saltiness you know the interesting thing is i was kind of like researching you know salt and i found a lot of very interesting things one of the things i noted here i said salt is an extremely stable compound and cannot lose its flavor mm-hmm. it's quite interesting that jesus is saying that if you lose your flavor how can you even lose your flavor in the first place because salt cannot lose its flavor and i said the only time sodium chloride might be considered as a compound that has lost its savor is when it is exposed to moisture or water right so it means that there is something which can dilute that compound mm. would make it lose its you know savor even when that happens the chemical properties of that compound disappears mm. with time leaving a quite powder like substance which looks like salt but might not even be salt mm. in, the, in the first place so as a christian you're comparing that to the life of a christian it's like Losing your savor means losing the relevance of the gospel you received. Hmm. You know, so you, it, it, it happens as a result of, you know, we are in a world where there are so many um, ideologies. I mean, this, I wrote here, I said, it also means allowing yourself to be diluted by the moisture of other ideologies that are inconsistent with the gospel. So, which is the truth, right? So these ideologies could be social, yeah. They could be political, they could be sociocultural, they could be contextual, they could be religious, philosophical, heretical, and the likes. So all these ideas comes into the Christian mm. and then dilutes your identity. You don't know who you are anymore. Mm. What you have has an identity. I, I know sometimes, you know, there's always a struggle of what is absolute, what is right, what is truth. Because the Bible talks about you shall know that truth and that truth shall set you free. Mm-hmm. When you have the truth in you, it is possible that you can lose the truth. How can you lose the truth? It might become half-truth. Or people would take this word and put it in a different context and present it back to you. By the time you realize, you realize that you missed the whole point. Mm-hmm. So it's also important. Jesus Christ was you know, highlighting the fact that you can lose your saltiness if you are exposed to these things and you don't guard yourself. Mm. So it's extremely important for you to know that you need to guard what is in you mm. because you have an identity which is different from what the world is presented. Mm. The world will present all kinds of gospels. Even I think there, there are parts in the Bible where it talks about, you know, people, false teachers creeping into the church unawares and presenting all kinds of false gospels and false doctrines. And people are being diluted by those kind of ideologies. Mm. And that is a big problem. For the Christian in this time, for you to lose your saltiness, it means that you have been so entangled 
with all these plenty ideologies and theories and all this knowledge from life in such a way that you don't even know who you are anymore. Mm. And then the question goes, are you still a Christian? If you find yourself in this kind of situation. That's a, that's a, a very nice rhetorical question. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Mariah, <laughs> there you are. Great, so I get to follow Eric, so that's fantastic. <laughs> um, now, I, I, did, I looked at the same things that Eric did, and one thing that um, kind of stood out was the fact that, you, that salt can be diluted and it can completely just lose its effectiveness. Um, and so the thing that stood out to me with that was we are not in a one decision and you lose your effectiveness kind of situation here. It is a process. And it's a it's this process of being diluted, and so it's not like as being a follower of Christ or disciple of Christ, we are we're one decision away from doing this. It's just like what Eric talked about: all of these different um, thoughts that come in, all of these different beliefs that come in, and these influences that come in. If we don't keep our eyes completely on Jesus Christ and truth, and following exactly what we're supposed to be doing, and having that um, discernment as we filter through all of this, these worldliness that comes in, um, that's how we can take those steps towards becoming completely diluted and being ineffective. Um, and I think it was. Um, Bonhoeffer that um, talked about a lot about salt. And I think it was, um, um, he talked about being more of, um, you're never going to quit being salt, but at some point um, you can just be completely annihilated by everything around you. Mm. And you're no longer effective and you're no longer um, being a disciple, um, which probably kind of comes back to Eric, where you, you know, where's your Christianity in that? But I thought that was very interesting, um, doing a lot of research and more research on salt this week than I probably have ever done previously <laughs> and probably know a little bit more about it than, than uh, I want to. Um, but I thought that was, uh, I thought that was just my takeaway from it was um, it's, and we see this um, even with people who are um, studying to be ministers and things like that. Um, at some point there's this, um, this walking away from their faith, this walking away from a church, they're walking away from um, this calling. And I just think it's so important that there's always that um, continual process of growing closer as we're being pulled away. And so I think that was probably the biggest thing for me as yeah. I was studying um, becoming ineffective um, as salt is that uh, we need to always be remindful of, of that process that can pull us away. Okay. Thanks a lot. Um, Jack, before I come to you, I mean, I, I thought about the same um, idea. And uh, one thing I also, I realized was that um, I didn't know that, but then one writer, I think it's uh, Dean White or so, says something like, salt can be used to create traction on icy roads. I never knew that. Like uh, when it's snowing at the, at, at the, at the, at the I mean, the, the fronts, uh, the, the front of your door, you can put salt there to keep you from slipping, you know? And then I was like, well, as, as you just said, so we are, as the body of Christ, as disciples of, disciples of God, um, of Jesus Christ, God has so said us, has put us in such a place that we are supposed to keep the society from slipping into a place of um, ruin or corruption, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I, I found that really instructive. And it's talking about all these things about ideas. You know, Colossians 2.8 uh, puts it very um, aptly when it, Paul says that, beware lest uh, anyone cheat you 
through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men and then uh, basic um, elements of the world or basic uh, philosophies of the world, not according to Christ. So Paul talked about it. It's something that people try to cheat you of the truth of the gospel. And um, I've been thinking about what, what is it that will make people uh, dilute the message, adulterate the truth of the gospel with all these philosophies. And, and one thing I, I came to mind was this idea of self-preservation, fear of men, and you know, insecurity and all that. So people are afraid of confrontation, opposition. So, and they want to be comfortable. So they don't want to really meddle and really let the word or the truth of God come out. And when that happens, it's like before you, you know, you're already overcome uh, by what is actually happening out there. So, and Paul said that if you, are, you, are, you want to be a born servant of Christ, you cannot be a born servant of Christ and be a pleaser of men at the same time. You know, the two are mutually ex- exclusive. So I, I, I found that really. So thanks a lot. But Jack, um, your thoughts on that. And, you know, Jesus says something here that um, same verse 13, that if it, it loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing. It's then good for nothing and, and it to be, but to be thrown and trampled underfoot by men. Um, the same thought, I mean, your thought on that. And also, how can a disciple, I mean, comparatively, be thrown underfoot? I mean, be trampled by men? Well, yeah, that's that's a, a great question. And again, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be uh, with uh, you guys um, this this afternoon. And so, yeah, before I, I chime in, I think I'll allude to sections, um, some of the comments that uh, Dr. Howell and Eric also made, uh, very perceptive uh, comments. So one thing is that, like looking, again, going back to the idea of salt as a metaphor for the nature and purpose of the earth, I think one of the essential qualities of salt, as uh, Dr. Howell uh, touched on in her comments, lies in its ability to draw out the unique taste of each ingredient in a meal. so when put into a soup or stew, salt makes it possible for us to savor the taste of the tomatoes, the peppers, and what have you. In other words, uh, salt works with and not against the ingredients in a meal. Mm. Uh, consequently, when Jesus speaks of the Christian or the church as the salt of the earth, he speaks of the fact that the church-earth relationship cannot and must not be seen through oppositional lens. Hmm. Um, seeing, the, the church, seeing the church's relationship with the earth in oppositional terms erroneously engenders an escapist attitude, hmm. whereby Christians imagine the earth as a hostile and evil place one must necessarily escape to heaven. Um, furthermore, when we see the, the church's relationship with the earth in oppositional terms, we also develop a dominionist an exploitative attitude to the earth. We, we call it sometimes taming the earth, like because we see the earth as just a hostile place that must be that we must exercise dominion over. So to move away from this oppositional way of conceiving the church's relationship with the earth, we need to prom- properly define what Jesus means when he speaks of the earth. Now, the Greek word used for earth is guess in this verse, or gay, like in some other uh, passages, which properly translated refers to the physical earth, soil, and the land. 
Therefore, the earth must be distinguished from the world. Mm. The Greek word for world, as we realize in the first week of the series, mm. um, is cosmos, which according to John 1 refers to the fallen and oppressive systems humanity has established mm-hmm. to oppose God's purpose. When we make this distinction, it becomes clear that as a salt of the earth, Jesus is hereby calling the church to work towards making the conditions of earthly life better for the flourishing of all creation. Um, And history suggests an oppositional attitude to the earth and creaturely life is a root and a precursor to all acts of tribalism, racism, and socioeconomic injustice. Uh, For example, opposition to the diversity of, uh, for example, in opposition to the diversity of creaturely life, um, Hitler and the Nazis um, exterminated 6 million Jews. Mm-hmm. And, and when Hitler and the Nazis began uh, gassing the Jews, sections of the German church felt it wasn't their business to interfere since they were on their way to heaven. Um, other sections of the church, of the German church, also felt that Hitler was only exercising the church's divine right to dominate the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, consequently, the German church stood silent. Um, as the um, Jews were murdered en masse. And if you think about it, like salt in a soup, we do not make the earth better by dominating and exploiting the earth, which supports all creatures. We make creaturely life better by working alongside the earth. Mm. Um, and, And so if you look at it today, because of the escapist and the dominionist impulse uh, that, uh, that accounts for much of the church's response to our responsibility to the earth, uh, many people are saying, uh, especially environmentalists, are saying that, look, the church is good for nothing. In fact, the church is 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 reason why we are seeing the exploitation of the earth. Mm-hmm. Because why? These people are happy singing hymns because they're on their way to heaven. Whereas um, ecologically, you find pollution, uh, Plant life is being disturbed. Animal life is being disturbed. And now we are speaking of climate change. Even there are sections of Christians who deny the fact of climate change. And so clearly, even when you go into the academy or even in in places, political places, like people just feel that the church is actually um, an impediment towards like uh, towards the effort to even uh, save the earth and, 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 um, become like for us to be more ecologically responsible. And for me, I think that when the church loses its saltiness in this sense, it's a way of saying that the church loses its relevance. Mm. It misses out on its nature and purpose as a preserver, as as a a body that has been mandated to attend and nurture creature life. Because if you are looking at it, I think that the church should be even at the forefront when it comes to anything about uh, ecological responsibility, making sure that the, the earth uh, is still a sustainable place to support plant and animal life. Why? Because Jesus, God incarnate, became flesh. He became soil. He became matter. And so we should attend uh, to the earth, as it were, and not wow. lose our relevance. Yeah. Wow. Thanks a lot. Um, well, I'll come back to Dr. Howell again. And looking at verse 14, it says that by the light of the world, the city of the, uh, set on a hill cannot be hidden. Uh, nor did they light a, a light and lamp and put it under a, ba- a basket, but put it on a lampstand that gives light to all who are in the house. 
what does it mean to you? What does it say um, also about the function or the mandate of, of believers? Okay, well, first of all, Jackson, I want to say that was really beautiful. That was a really beautiful reflection, and I think you did a good job of tying together both the nature of salt as preserver and as that which brings out the flavor of creation itself, mm -hmm. right? We're called to make, to be co-laborers um, with God in making creation be fully what creation was intended to be, which was our place to walk with God and enjoy him forever. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that. I also just want to follow up and just point out um, when I mentioned earlier that the disciples were addressed by you from Jesus, you are these things. That was a plural you. Mm -hmm. And I was reminded as I was listening to Eric and Mariah and Jackson that when we are salt, you know, one grain of salt isn't going to do much, mm -hmm. right? We talked about being, um, you know, being caught up in, in being dispersed by water and things like this, but one little grain of salt isn't going to do what salt needs to do. It's only collectively that salt has its function. So this brings us now to this next imagery that Jesus gives. So he gives these together. And so I suggest that as we move into this second reflection of us being the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, um, that we think about it in relationship to the conversation we just had about salt. Mm. Okay, so what does it mean to be light? Right? What is it to be the light of the world? So first of all, we, we started with this very sort of domestic image of salt, yeah. gathering around a table, um, this just the most domestic of functions of cooking um, and thinking about the role that salt played in sacrifices in the Old Testament, where God wants us to season all our sacrifices that we make to him with salt. Now we're going to light. Light is huge. Light spans the horizon. Light is bigger than we are. Whether it's the light from the sun, or if we're thinking about the sun, Jesus Christ, light is this sort of pervasive cosmic image, and here I'm using cosmic not in a derogatory sense, but a cosmic vision in terms of all that is, right? And so here God or Jesus, not or, but God, Jesus, is telling us that we are the light of the world. Now, as we unpack this, I first want to address ways that this text has been appropriated in very problematic ways. Hmm. Um, particularly in the United States. And I want to I just address it briefly because I want to start, I think that many of us in the United States at least were brought up to think about this imagery in different terms um, that are, quite frankly, I find idolatrous. And it goes all the way back to colonization. Um, the Massachusetts Bay Company sends a, a shipload of pilgrims over the ocean and as they are approaching the bank, John Winthrop, who is um, leading this endeavor of colonization on behalf of the Massachusetts Bay Corporation, turns to the, the, the settlers on the, the boat and tells them they are the city on the hill. They are the light of the world. And he uses the language to frame their endeavor that they are about to embark on in this new 
this new land as they colonize and settle the Native Americans who are already living there. And this image and this vision that John Winthrop cast so long ago has become a bedrock foundation in our American political discourse. Uh, John F. Kennedy uh, gave a very moving and beautiful and articulate speech mandating that the United States become the city on the hill. Um, later on, Ronald Reagan will pick that up and use it. Barack Obama used it. Mitt Romney has used it. This has become a signature metaphor for American exceptionalism. Yeah. And so I want to say right now that that's not what Jesus is talking about here. <laughs> right? This isn't a national mandate. This is a mandate for disciples of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And while certainly there may have been good intentions all along the way in these speeches the, the 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 disciples of jesus christ are called to be the salt of the earth they're called to be different they're called to be in a way um in ways that are not always part of larger culture faithful to jesus christ and so i i i, I did want to address that first but I think here we hold these two together, salt of the earth, of the earth, earthiness, and now we have this image of being light, right? Light that sheds, um, that, that breaks the darkness. Light as the bearers of truth. Light as the sign of hope set on a hill, right? When you are in your despairing moments, to look at light is the means of hope. And I think... That's what Jesus is talking about here. We are called to be the bearers of God's hope. Mm. Mm. Wow. Thanks. Thanks a lot, uh, Dr. Howell. That's, that's a lot to take in. Um, so it is our connection with Jesus that makes us light, not to a culture or a nation. Eric, um, <laughs> coming again um, with verse 16. So what does that mean to you? Let's, let's look at that. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, um, Dr. Howell really did a good job in, you know, re-shifting our minds to what it actually is, as opposed to what we think it has always been. Mm. So um, it is important for us also to realize something. As light, you know, light has an extent of brightness or uh, luminosity, right? The brighter, light could be something which would, would be used destructively. Okay, the brighter it could have effect on the eyes, right? But then this kind of light, you know, which the Bible is talking about, has certain characteristics which we need to be able to like understand. When I was going through this, one thing which really you know struck me strongly is that for your light to shine, first you must recognize few things. One, recognize that you have you have a light in you in the first place. The truth of the matter is that you know most of the times. Um, Christians want to embody this life of Christianity, want to be able to, just like Justin said before, we want to be able to help in understanding that it is not, you know, a position we have to dominate, but a position to be connected, to have to, to share that kind of common value with the world. But the truth of the matter is that if you don't recognize the kind of light you have in you, then you cannot be able to make these connections. That is the, the thing. You can see yourself as a light who is dominating over people and slaving them according to you know history and all that but then you can also recognize the light which christ has placed in you like the bible says christ in us the hope of our glory right so which means that you can be a christian 
and not know that you have light. One, you can be a Christian and know that you have light, but you can be using uh, you can be using a wrong ideology or a wrong perspective to define the light you shine. So it is important for you to recognize which kind of light are you shining? Are you shining that of Christ? And that would push you back to, you know, uh, thinking back into history, thinking about, you know, Jesus Christ, what he came to do, the messages he preached about the light. I mean, when we go back to the books, the books will teach you everything according to the way Jesus Christ wants us to live as light, you know, in the world. He came to be an example of that light. So as much as possible, when we want to look at anything in relation to the world, we need to first, as light, look at ourselves in the eyes of what Jesus Christ did in the past. So it's, it's extremely important. Another thing to realize is that you must understand the concept of illumination is extremely important. Um, I said here, which is the power light has over darkness. We have a world today where you know we have a lot of darkness around us. People are kind of like misinterpreting scripture, misinterpreting you know all kinds of concepts. And then we have a dark world which is presenting this ideology that Christianity in itself is just there. And, you know, Christianity, which is supposed to stand for a lot of things positive, is rather assuming a position of negativity. And nobody wants to be able to follow that kind of, you know, light ideology. But it is important that we recognize that a dark room is illuminated at the presence of light. Do we Christians or do we even the body of Christ find ourselves producing that kind of light in our world do we see ourselves from that perspective or we only see ourselves if you see yourself to dominate and just to take over that is exactly what happens so then you begin to lose focus of what you really are that is what i was talking about like the concept of you know uh, illumination a light anytime a light is in a dark room it's quite automatic the dark room becomes enlightened right? It means that wherever we find ourselves, we should be able to, I wrote here, I said, your presence should carry some form of illumination. Mm. As a Christian, you move into an environment, you don't have any identity, you just blend with the masses. What is the difference? What makes you different from other people who are practicing the same thing you are doing? Mm. Because right. it is Christ which is in you, and it has to be able to shine. So if you go somewhere, we don't see that light in you as a Christian, the light of the gospel, the light of being confident in your identity in Christ. Mm. Then I, I feel like, you know, there are certain little, little things which are missing, which we need to kind of like return back to the foundation. Also, I said, the presence of light is always seen and felt. And I wrote here, I said, unless you are blind. Mm. So as a Christian, people who come into contact with you should be able to experience the influence of your light. Unless they are blind, we are in a blind world where a lot of people are leading, you know, people astray blindly, preaching all kinds of messages. But it is important that we stick to what Jesus Christ preached. As light, we need to be able to reflect that in our environment. And then there is, I wrote, I said, the, verse 16 actually equates your luminosity with good works. That's also another thing you should see. So that it's a let your light so shine so that they will see your good works, right? And glorify your, your Father which is in heaven. And if you read Ephesians 2, 10, it states that for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Mm. So I would say that as Christians, it's important that we should be a walking testimony of God's presence among the people, both individually and as the church. Mm. If we don't have that kind of testimony, it's difficult for people to even relate to us that way. People are calling the the church all kinds of names today but what do we stand for are we standing for that light are people really seeing that light or we are leading them rather into darkness or blindness 
because God even said in the word that he prepared this beforehand, right? That is why Jesus Christ would tell those people, you are going to become this. Remember this and make sure that you are moving in that direction. Mm. So I feel like the church today and even individually, we need to know who we are. We need to understand the concept of illumination and we need to be able to find ourselves enlightening or mm. enlivening everywhere we find ourselves, even mm. as we go forth. All right. Thanks a lot. Um, Mariah, any comment on that um, before I, I, I come back to you? Yeah. yeah, I think um, just to go along with what Eric said and, and kind of like what Dr. Howell brought up at the very beginning um, with salt is that um, in this passage that we see, um, we are light. Jesus isn't saying... If you decide to shine your light, we are the light. And so it's not a it's not a gift that is given. Um, it means that we can't be hidden if we want to be. Mm-hmm. So there's this accountability that's there. And so in a practical sense for a Christian life, for me, it, it kind of tells me no matter my actions, my tone, my words, whatever I'm doing in my life, I'm always representing mm-hmm. um, Jesus Christ and representing truth. So the question for me becomes on a daily basis is what am I displaying for those who are within my influence? Am I showing the love of Christ? Am I speaking truth? Um, Am I living life that's displaying Jesus Christ correctly? Or am I showing Christ to be judgmental? Am I showing Christ to be oppressive, um, rejecting those who don't look like me or act like me, especially within the church? You know, I think it's one of the biggest things that we're facing right now in the church is um, who is the church and we're trying to come through as a collective. And so I think as I'm, as I read these passages, it's just a reminder of, um, I get no choice in this. I don't get to, um, walk away from being light. I am light. So how am I using that? Um, and am I presenting that? Well, am I, um, reflecting well? And so there's always that accountability. And I think that's what's missing so often in current Christianity is, we can kind of step away from this process if we want to, and then come back when we feel like we're ready to take on something more. Mm. Um, and we don't, we're always representing um, in words and deeds and actions. Mm. And I think that's always important is that we don't get to step away from this work. It is always right in front of us, yeah. no matter how we represent um, we are um, representing. So I think that's probably the only addition I would add yeah. to the amazing work that Eric said. Thanks a lot um, for all those comments. Um, one thing that I would actually recommend, I mean, to those who are watching, even all of us, I mean, when we look at how we can practice being the light of the world, I looked at Ephesians chapter 5. It's, it has an amazing job of that. Uh, verse 1 to 21 talks about how believers or disciples of Christ can function as light of the world. And then I, I will just talk about the verse 11, where we talk about, you know, being the light of the world. It says that... Um, Avoid uh, fruitless deeds of darkness, um, but rather expose them. You know, that is what uh, Paul asked the Ephesians. They should just shine away from fruitless deeds, but rather expose them. So this is a whole idea of exposing, just making sure that the truth of God is visible. The kingdom of God is, you know, visible in our world is, is very important. And uh, what, when I, well, the more I thought about it, the more I thought that when Paul talks about the believer in Romans 12, 21, that uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's like we are set in a place where God wants us to be progressive. He wants us to be proactive. He wants us to be responsive. 
you know, and, and he just wants us to be productive. That is the, how God has so set the salvation experience. So the, the good news I, I, I get from this is that when you go back to the earlier verses, you cannot be hidden. All right? You, you cannot be hidden because you are sitting on the hill. You, if you are connected to the light of the world, but just said that as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. So if you are in him, you have the life, which is actually the light of men. So if you are in him and you are embodying his teachings, you cannot be hidden. You know, it's very important for us to note that because we are living in this mediated world where people uh, assess their value based on the number of likes and followers they have. You know, not really about the power of God in them that is demonstrating the power, I mean, the, the gospel, the truth of the gospel out there. And uh, w- when you look at the, that analogy about the lampstand, is it that all those who are in the, in, in the house can see it? So it tells you that even the first witnesses, the first people, uh, the first group of people who are able to see your light is actually people who are close to you, your family, you know, your workplace, the people who, are who actually you meet around, your immediate environment. They are the first beneficiaries of the light. You know, and, and I believe that is one thing I also kind of feel like we should really think about. Uh, we start from our Jerusalem. And a lot of people want to just jump out there and I want to be famous. I want to just gain the recognition. But um, the truth that you cannot be hidden. But first, in your home, people should see Christ in you so that they have the hope um, that they actually you can do something out there in Samaria and to the end of the world. And so thank, thanks a lot for all these um, great uh, comments. Now, I'll, I'll come back to Jack. Um, the good works, you do the good works, but the glory goes to the Father. I, I, I thought about this, why is it the case? Um, why shouldn't the good work come to you? You are the doer, at least, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, to you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, in a sense, I would say that the, the glory, quite obvious, like the glory must go to the Father because he is the source and dynamic of all that is good about the church. Um, and uh, apart from this, I think that the church exists in the world as a testimony that the Father has not abandoned creation. He's not abandoned the world. Uh, when we are functioning properly as the church, we will embody an alternative politics, an alternative way of living, um, away from the dominant uh, politics of exploitation and oppression. And this will invariably lead people to the Father who begot the church through Christ and the Spirit. And when, when you, you look at this question about the Father, well, uh, when you look at the text, what it says that when we shine out as light, people rather will rather give glory to God. It, it, it kind of reminds me of what we did in the first week of the flesh series, when we looked at the fact that uh, uh, in John 1, 1, he said that, and the word was with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I made a comment to the effect that like the word there with in, in the Greek is, 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 is pros, and that is literally translated as like, it is towards God. That is, uh, if we are in Christ, Christ permanently orients his face towards God, like he's always giving glory to God. If you look at John chapter 17, the Father gives glory to the Son, and then the Son gives glory to the Father. That's what the theologians call the Trinitarian dance. Uh, they, they keep giving glory to the other. They defer and give glory to the other, and then the other 
confers glory on that. So it's like that beautiful imagery. And I think a true Christian life, a true ecclesial life mm. will always live with that idea that it is God who deserves the glory. It is God who deserves all the credit if we are really shining. And on the flip side, if we are not shining, what that means is that like God is, because we bear his name, mm. uh, we are going to uh, be a stumbling block uh, to our generation. And for the most part, right now, whenever we are thinking about even issues, contemporary issues like racism, people do not even want to hear it when you talk about the church because uh, I think they always invoke uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s statement that Sundays are the most segregated, uh, Sunday mornings are the most segregated um, hours uh, in, in, in the life of the American um, society. And, and that is very, very, this, that is an indictment uh, on, uh, should I say, our practices of baptism yeah. and even our practice of sharing the Lord's Supper. Because in both of these practices, we are announcing uh, that the new, the kingdom has been born and is being birthed on this earth in a real way. And that God has established a new community, a community of unity, a community that transcends the division uh, of, of race and also, and also, also tribe, tribal identity, as it were. And so it is very important that we remember that we are bearing witness to the Father. We are shining brightly. If even people cannot see the light, as someone has said, they must at least feel the heat that comes from the light. Um, uh, people should feel that we make a difference. And I think that it is time for us to remember some of these things and, and shine once again in okay. our generation. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I'll reserve the next um, couple of minutes, um, about maybe two minutes we have before we round up. For Dr. Howell, um, yeah, all said and done, uh, what is the hope? Uh, do you, does this passage, I mean, have any hope or does it give any encouragement to those of us uh, right now? Does it speak to the condition in our world today? Well, what is the hope? I mean, I think the hope here begins first and foremost with the fact that um, these are not things that we earn, mm. right? These are things that Jesus has said we already are. Mm. And we've talked about that today in terms of it, it can be a moral indictment to know that, right? We are the light. And so what are we shedding um, clarity on? What are we revealing in the light? Um, it is sobering. It is an invitation to be who God has called us to be, all the while knowing God has already named us as such. Mm. Um, this is just like the Beatitudes, a gift. Um, and it is a gift that does not promise us that we will not suffer. Mm. It is a gift that does not promise us that if we're faithful, we're going to get everything we want and things are going to work out the way they that we think they should. It is a promise that even as we are cast out onto the street and even as we walk through moments of despair, that we are gods, mm. that we belong to God, mm. that Jesus has said, you are my disciples. Mm. So it is both, I think, the hope of knowing that that's who God says we are mm. and 
it's the hope that we rise to this description of who we are mm-hmm. and that we be who God has said, if we follow in the way of Christ, we will live, we will live in this way mm-hmm. and, and in no other way, mm-hmm. but in the road, on the road that God, that Jesus walks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's the, that's the narrow way. And that's the only way we have. I'll let Dr. Um, Howell pray with that. But before that, for those who are listening, God willing, we'll continue next week at 12 p.m. But um, uh, all said and done, what, what our, our general objective for doing and flesh, as I said, to just help us to embody the teachings or the values of God's kingdom. And uh, when we get to this um, side, this time, uh, one thing I always want to emphasize is that, I mean, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, all right? Um, the, the thought that what that we are talking about, if you do not give Jesus a chance, you don't give God a chance in your heart, you cannot even begin to uh, walk in this truth. And um, Philippians, in Philippians, God, Paul says that it is God who works in us, you know, both to will and act according to his good pressure, uh, pleasure. Okay, So if without God, we cannot embody, we cannot really apply these truths. And my prayer is that as Dr. Howell um, is going to, I'm going to pray, uh, pray right now, my prayer is that we allow the light of the world to shine in our hearts. Uh, also that it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts uh, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So the light of the world with Jesus Christ can only shine if we give him a chance. We give him an opportunity. And when he comes in, then he makes that not just a light. And I like what Dr. Howell said. We connect it to the salt as well. We preserve, we keep, but we let the good works, you know, do all that. And at the end of the day, we give God the glory because he's the author and the finisher of all that we do. Uh, may God bless you. And uh, as I said, after Dr. Howell's praise, I will just play the song that I, I played last week. That's our theme song. Just think about it, meditate on it, and then let it be a prayer. And I'm sure God will use that um, to touch you in a great way. So I'll let Dr. Howell pray and end with us. God, you bless us by teaching us that we are salt. Uh, We are salt of the earth. And yet we know that you are fullness of the earth. You teach us that we are the light of the world, but you are light of light. You are the true light. We pray, God, that you continue to abide with us on this narrow path. We pray that you continue to shape us and mold us, that we may more fully bear witness to who you are in this world. We thank you for the good gifts of your son and for all that he is in this world today. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen.